Welcome to the EMJ podcast with me, your host, Dr. Jonathan Sakia. Today, I'm joined by Dr. David Crosby, Head of Prevention and Early Detection Research at Cancer Research UK, a funding research charity here in Britain, and the world's second largest non-commercial funder of cancer research after the American government. We'll be speaking about the importance of prevention and the early detection of cancer. David first studied pharmacology at the University of Bristol in Britain, then completed a PhD studying cell signaling in platelets, and that's something I'm going to ask him about. After spending time in academia lecturing in clinical pharmacology, he moved to industry, working for the world's largest medical gases company, Linda Gas Therapeutics. He then moved into the public sector, joining the Medical Research Council, the British government's funding research agency. During this time, he oversaw multiple research funding programs and various science areas before starting his role at Cancer Research UK. He's developing and implementing a new strategy and program for research investments, which aim to accelerate progress towards earlier detection and, of course, prevention of cancer through an integrated, multidisciplinary approach driven by improvements in health outcomes. Outside of this fascinating role, wait for it, David is also a singer in a rock band. We're very privileged to have Dr. David Crosby here with us today, and I look forward to hearing all about your inspiring work. Welcome. Thank you very much, Jonathan. It's a pleasure to be here today. Thank you for inviting me. It's my pleasure, and I've got to start with, it's too good not to ask. You've got to tell us about the music career, and your name, of course, David Crosby, any relation to another? Ah, well, my, my parents uh, assure me the, the name is pure coincidence, but I, I was born in 1978. So, you know, the, the timing's a little suspicious for me not to be named after my famous namesake. Um, but yeah, I, I've, I've played uh, music since uh, I was a, a teenager when I first picked up a guitar. And uh, it's been yeah, something I've always enormously enjoyed. And come on, more. What what, what genre? What what kind of rock? Well, I'm I'm into uh, pretty much every kind of music. But uh, the band that I play with, we do uh, sort of fun, upbeat, sing along rock and pop covers. So you know, oldies like Queen and the Rolling Stones. You know, through to newer stuff like the the Killers or uh, the Strokes or what have you. Fantastic. Well, very. I'm. My, I take my hat off to you, you know, having one string to your bow is great, but having two and such diverse ones. And of course, there's a lot of, a lot of musicians who are scientists, one, one or two of whom we've had as guests on our show. Mike Einziger, who's the lead guitarist for, uh, for Incubus, is also a citizen scientist doing some amazing work. So anyway, I love hearing people's uh, origin stories. And Given I considered doing pharmacology while at medical school, I'd be intrigued to know what led you to that specialty and what inspired you to work in the oncology field in particular. Sure. So I've always been fascinated with how things work. You know, I, I like uh, lifting the bonnet and, you know, really digging around and finding out um, the mechanisms of why things happen and, and therefore how we can intervene. And that's really what pharmacology is the science of. For those who, who may not be aware, it's essentially the science of how uh, drugs or our endogenous transmitters of signals, you know, hormones and the neurotransmitters and so on, how those molecules interact with cells uh, through proteins expressed on the surface of those cells called receptors. And then what happens once that signal hits that cell? What, what happens inside it? You know, what molecular changes happen? 
to cause different behaviors in that cell. And the complexity and the intricacy and the elegance of those mechanisms were always fascinating to me. That's very eloquently put. I mean, I, I know trying to explain to my son the concept of a, you know, of a, of a beta blocker or a, how a pain medication works, because I'm like you. I love knowing how stuff works. Of course, that's assuming I can pronounce it. <laughs> oh, I mentioned uh, your PhD in my introduction. During your PhD in Bristol, you studied cell signaling in platelets. Please tell us about that, because I've recently been reading up on platelet-rich plasma, PRP, that's mm. been used for all sorts of stuff, and the role that platelets may play in healing. So, you know, talk to us about that and tell us what got you into that field. Yeah, so platelets, uh, I suppose, have been uh, historically um, disregarded as relatively uninteresting. So a, a platelet is essentially a, a cell fragment that kind of emerges from the bone marrow. It doesn't have a nucleus, so it, it doesn't, you know, generate RNA or, or, you know, further express proteins itself. But it is packed with a, a kind of mixture of all sorts of uh, different signaling molecules that it can release externally. So their, their primary purpose is to initiate the process of blood clotting. So it's platelets that first recognize a rupture in your blood vessels, and then they, they stick uh, to that rupture, then they stick to each other, and then they start releasing signals out into the blood that cause agglutination and that cause uh, clotting, essentially, of, of the blood around it. And... They were they were kind of disregarded as being uninteresting because of this lack of nucleus and uh, and you know a, basically a single function. Oh, they just cause blood clotting. But actually, over time, it's become increasingly apparent that they uh, play a role in many things and, and you know wound healing, um, as you just mentioned. But also more recently, in 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 my current role, we've we've started seeing that platelets actually suck up the molecules that are floating around in the plasma, and so they actually uh, kind of become educated by the by the human system around them and can respond to it so a platelet from a cancer patient looks a little different to a platelet from a healthy individual so that can be a useful signal what uh, drew me to the study of platelets was partially serendipity and partially uh, genuine interest said so I'd, I'd done a undergraduate degree in Bristol and did a third year project um, in a lab that studied platelets really by luck. I mean, I, I liked cell signaling and so went for a cell signaling lab and it just so happened to be in platelets. Um, but that really turned me on to the possibilities of, of what that field could become. And so then naturally, you know, followed through to, to do the PhD there. It's fantastic. Also a lovely place. I love Bristol. Yeah. At the, the MRC, the Medical Research Council, you led a program uh, that was sort of combined the MRC and the National Institute for Health Research. Explain the different roles and explain what this program aimed to do. Hmm. So the Medical Research Council, MRC, and the National Institute for Healthcare Research, NIHR, are the government's two main medical research funding agencies. Um, the MRC funds academic research at the more basic and early translational end. So they do you know, studies of, of fundamental biology underpinning disease, and then the generation and early evaluation of um, uh, interventions, you know, new medicines, uh, new diagnostic approaches and so on. Then the NIHR is part of the Department of Health and they fund um, the more late stage translational research. So does a new intervention, a new therapy, a new diagnostic, what have you, 
does it work in the real world in the NHS and is it um, health economically viable? So there's a continuum, of course, between those two things. The, the two programs that I ran um, towards the end of my time at MRC uh, tried to sort of sit in the nexus between those two organisations, one of which was about methodology research. So that is the science of how we do science. How, how do we design experiments? How do we ensure that they are appropriately statistically powered? How do we ensure that the comparison groups, the control groups, and other experimental design factors uh, are all optimal? And how do we best analyze the results? And I'm doing the huge field a disservice by simplifying in that way, but it's essentially, you know, how do we have the best instruction manual for how to design scientific experiments? And that sits across the continuum from basic through translational to applied research. The other area, the other area that I looked after um, was experimental medicine. And that, again, sits at that interface between basic science and applied clinical science. Experimental medicine is essentially um, using the human being as the experimental animal. So how can we understand the mechanism of disease and the mechanism of action of drugs and other interventions through conducting experiments in humans? And that's all got to be done, uh, obviously, in the t tenor of, uh, of, of good ethics. And, you know, at a time where there's increased uh, scrutiny of our use of experimental animals, appropriately so, because A, there's the, the morality issue that I know people, uh, a, a lot of people struggle with, even those who do the work. And then there's the fact that the physiology, you know, is not the same. There are many medications that you can give a human that you can't give um, a canine, for instance, um, and vice versa. Yeah, that's absolutely right. So the use of animals um, in, in uh, biomedical research has been critical, you know, absolutely fundamental to the state of modern medicine. And, you know, a, a high proportion of modern medicines would not exist had we not done the early mechanistic research and the early drug development research in animal systems, um, because they teach us about mechanism in a way that we can control and you know tweak various parameters. The challenge is that animal models are an abstraction. You know they are a simplified system where we can you know tweak one molecule at a time. You know we can knock out one gene at a time and see what happens. But of course that is uh, highly reductive and it's artificial. You know real human disease is often much more complex, much more multifactorial. It's not just you know one gene that's causing a problem, it's many genes or, or many different signaling factors interacting. So while animal uh, models are an essential tool and have, have delivered uh, and will continue to be an essential tool for the foreseeable future, we need to do more in humans because that's the environment in which you know we're actually trying to make things better and you know that's the the disease system and the mechanisms that we're really trying to intervene in sure so let's move on to talk about cancer research uk's mission and you know what what attracted you to uh, to getting involved mm. well i mean cancer is a disease which 
touches almost all of us. Um, you know, the, the sort of latest uh, figures show that uh, one in two people will be affected by cancer in their lifetimes. And that proportion will increase as we age, you know, as, as we die less from earlier, earlier cardiovascular disease, for example, we're all going to live longer. And the longer we live, the, you know, the higher the chances of us developing cancer. So it is a universal problem that cuts across social groups, across nations, across ethnicities. So it attracted me as a pure kind of moral imperative um, for, for, for humanity to do better, to help those who are afflicted. The other thing that attracted me to uh, cancer as a research field is um, personal. Uh, my mother died of cancer um, when I was 16. Uh, she had colorectal cancer. It was diagnosed at a, a late stage, and that obviously had an enormous impact on, on me and the trajectory of my life and, and my career choices. You know, I, I don't want people, I don't want children to, to go through um, what I, I went through. Sure. I mean, that uh, very, very powerful, very telling. I, I could ask you, I'm tempted to ask you, but yes, cancer is a disease of largely of getting older. What are your thoughts on, it's probably an unfair question, but just projecting out, is there going to be, there's multiple small breakthroughs, but one big breakthrough on the mechanism of uh, malignant change. You know, if you mentioned colorectal cancer, so you think of etiologic conditions like familial polyposis coli, Lynch syndrome, uh, ulcerative colitis, the things that, well, if you have this, you've got more likelihood of getting that. But is there going to be, do you think, if certainly in, in your lifetime, um, an aha moment? I'm, I, I would say I'm fundamentally a, uh, a sort of technological optimist. So the answer to that question is absolutely yes. I think there will be multiple aha moments in my lifetime. I think the tools and technologies that we have at our disposal now to understand cancer, to find it, prognose and stratify it, and then to treat it are light years beyond that which we had 10 years ago and, and will continue to increase the pace. Um, so I certainly don't consider cancer intractable. And I think there's a myriad approaches that we can use to try to prevent cancer through reducing exposures. Um, but, but I think really cracking the biology is what's going to be key. Um, if we understand the mechanisms and the predispositions, as you mentioned, um, for, from those kind of genetic uh, you know, inherited conditions, if we really understand how and why it's starting, that's when we'll get the windows of opportunity to intervene more effectively. Watch this space, as they say. So there's all sorts of fancy treatments for cancer, but clearly prevention and early detection are of critical importance. You're now head of prevention and early detection research at, at Cancer Research UK. So talk to us through your mission there and how you bring those two aspects together, early detection and prevention. So my mission uh, in this role is to try to accelerate the pace of science through a targeted program of strategic investment to get us to the point where no cancer is detected too late. I think people inherently understand that early detection is a good thing. I, I think you know many of us have had uh, personal experience of, of 
friends or relatives who've been diagnosed with a, a cancer at an advanced stage where it becomes very difficult to treat and where prognosis is poor. If we can find cancer at its earliest stages, then we can intervene much more successfully, um, often through surgery to remove early uh, small lesions, but drug therapies are more effective at earlier stages before the cancer has had a chance to evolve and diversify. So we, if you take the example, as, as you mentioned, of colorectal cancer, if we um, detect that disease at an early stage, so um, stage one, where the lesion is very small and localized, then the survival rates uh, are something like 90%. Whereas if we detect the cancer at a very late stage, stage four, when it's uh, metastasized and spread throughout the body, then the survival rates are um, less than 10%. So that's the stark detection, uh, the stark difference that early detection can make. So my mission is to try and think through how uh, we can make this research happen quicker and result in impact on health quicker. And that means analysing the landscape of where we are now with the science. Um, what are the latest emerging insights? What's the state of play of current knowledge? And then to look at a, a desired future state, well if everything was perfect and uh, nobody was getting a late diagnosis, how could that work? And then try to think about the barriers between here and there and how we can most effectively use our donors' money to do the most important science to circumvent those barriers and get us to that desired future state. Then the other part of my role is about cancer prevention. So for me, the, the ideal uh, future state is nobody gets cancer at all. Now, of course, that's uh, a pretty distant goal, but I think it's a goal worth striving for. And cancer prevention has several aspects. Traditionally, cancer prevention has meant essentially removing or, or reducing the impact of what we call modifiable risk factors. These are elements of human behavior or environmental exposure which cause or um, increase the risk of cancer. So things like smoking, of course, is a modifiable risk factor. Diet, exercise patterns, and also exposure to environmental hazards uh, like asbestos or uh, air pollution, for example. So if we can conduct research to, to bring those factors down, then the rates of cancer incidence will decrease accordingly. But looking um, to the future, there's also a huge opportunity and a, and a kind of growing um, excitement and field of research around mechanistically informed, biologically driven preventive intervention. So that means if we understand the mechanisms of cancer genesis and, uh, for example, the immune system's response to early cancers, we can intervene uh, to, to um, nip those cancers in the bud and, and prevent them um, before they develop into full cancer. So cancer va vaccines would be one example of that. Um, there's research ongoing where people are looking at the manifestation of um, cancer antigens, so particular proteins expressed on the surface of early cancers, um, which are not present on, on healthy cells, against which we can vaccinate. And so you could you know, essentially induce an immune response in a healthy individual that uh, meant their immune system was trained to hunt out and kill um, cancers before they even emerge. Right. So, um, you know, the things that we talk about for prevention, things obviously like smoking, uh, obesity, um, being generally healthy. You mentioned air pollution. Um, 
and you mentioned the vaccine word. Are you concerned? This is a little bit in le- out of left field. There's been so much brouhaha in the media uh, around the COVID-19 um, pandemic and the role of vaccines and the role of anti-vaxxers. It was funny that we didn't really see that with the um, uh, HPV um, uh, vaccination programs, certainly not in the United States where I was living at the time. You know, the thought of vaccinating children before they're sexually active against cervical cancer, effectively getting cervical cancer from from a, a virus. Why do you think there was that difference? What was different about the way the program was rolled out? And do you think that we can do a better job educating the public about the role of vaccines in, in cancer compared to a viral disease? So the HPV vaccine has unquestionably been a triumph um, for uh, cancer research and we've seen the evidence emerging over the last year or so that it is having a dramatic impact on cervical cancer incidents already uh, in the UK and you know that is to be celebrated and it's it, you know we're on course uh, towards potentially being able to um, eradicate cervical cancer as a disease which you know would have been undreamt of um, only a few years ago it's been an incredibly important part of that journey to get the uh, outreach and engagement um, to the community that needs to take up that vaccine correct and that is a matter for as you say it's it's education but it's behavioral science essentially so you know a lot of research has been done around how best to reach out to and engage diverse populations uh, to try to improve uptake of medical interventions and it did work well um, for HPV. In the UK, you know, it's worked pretty well for COVID, actually. So, you know, we have a, a, a very good uptake rate. Um, you're, you're absolutely right that that is different in the States. So you asked why the difference in uptake between um, COVID vaccines and uh, HPV vaccines in the US. I can't obviously answer that question conclusively, but I can speculate the COVID vaccine was a particularly contentious issue. You know, it, it became a politicised topic where the debate wasn't 100% centred around medical efficacy and safety, but partisan lines appeared to be drawn, which meant that, you know, politically people allied themselves to an anti-vaccine stance. And that same politicisation was not really present around the HPV vaccine. So I think that didn't help. Also, the notion of a a sort of nationwide borderline mandatory requirement to take a vaccine is unpalatable to many people. Whereas something like the HPV vaccine, where it's much more, you know, optional and was delivered through, I believe, uh, in in states through primary care, you know, through their, their family doctor, um, Pediatrician. Yeah, pediatrician. That, that becomes different. If it's your family doctor saying, well, I think you should have this vaccine versus the president saying, I think this has this, you should have this vaccine. Those are two different sets of circumstances. The, uh, the other um, issue that is incredibly important around vaccine uptake, but also uptake of um, health improvements and medical interventions generally, is there are significant health disparities 
between different um, parts of our society. And it is often the case, and I'll, I'll speak from the UK perspective, as that's uh, where I'm most familiar. In the UK, there are big um, health disparities between different ethnic and demographic and socioeconomic groups. So folks who are in the more deprived parts of society are often at significantly higher risk of developing a variety of cancers. And those same groups are also uh, not as well served or as well reached by medical services. So you've got elevated risk and lower uptake of things like cancer screening in the same group. And that causes you know, significant health inequality. So that must be a, you know, an active area of research for, for Cancer Research UK and all funders to try to reach those communities and to serve them better. Right. So tell us a little bit about, you, you know, we've mentioned HPV, which is a preventative, uh, the vaccine is a preventative measure and an area where we're definitely winning the prevention war. In Australia, they developed this slip, slap, slop, slide campaign, slip on a shirt, slap on sunscreen, slap on a hat and slide on some sunglasses as ways to reduce the skin cancer rates. So where, where other examples of winning the prevention war and where do you think we could do better? Well, I think um, smoking has been um, a, a great success. A, a set of interventions to drive down um, smoking rates is working. And you know, smoking rates in this country are dramatically less uh, than they were a decade ago or, the, or in the decades prior. And that's been through a range of approaches, including at the governmental you know, policy level. So sort of tobacco taxation, the introduction of plain packaging, for which Cancer Research UK campaigned heavily, um, I think have been enormously successful in reducing smoking rates. And that has been coupled with um, some fantastic behavioural science smoking cessation uh, interventions and you know um, therapies to, to support people who are, who are trying to quit smoking and then the third factor was the i suppose the technological innovation of vaping which uh, also appears to be driving down um, smoking rates in the uk so i think that's quite a nice example of a multifaceted approach uh, driven by science and evidence that's helped bring down a modifiable risk factor and, and is reducing the rates of lung cancer incidence. But there's a long way to go, and there are many, many cancers where it's not so obvious what the modifiable risk factor is, or that you know there just isn't one. And so there are, you know, there's a long way to go in, in innovating uh, preventive interventions there. And I have a great deal of hope for um, things like what we call uh, chemo prevention or therapeutic prevention, which is the use of a drug to reduce the risk of cancer or, or prevent its incidence. And there's a lot of interest and a lot of research ongoing at the moment around, for example, the use of aspirin uh, to prevent cancers like colorectal cancer, which it appears uh, to reduce the risk of. So in interfering with the polyp cancer sequence, right? That's right, yes. Yeah, yeah. so... There's there's a long uh, transition. In sort of I've been taking it. I've been taking. I, I did a lot of colorectal work. I've been taking it for years, and then you, you keep hearing like, well, you know, the reduction in Alzheimer's potentially, obviously reduction in cardiovascular risk. But then, of course, there's all this brouhaha that it might cause ophthalmologic issues. And sometimes you've just got to take the best data, haven't you, instead of perfect data. Because there was this whole thing that aspirin reduces second heart attacks and second strokes. 
So for me, it was, well, maybe it'll reduce the risk of a first one. Yeah, so you're right that um, using using the best uh, data available is is better than waiting um, for perfect data often. Of course, uh, anyone thinking uh, about using aspirin to lower their risk of anything um, should consult with their GP for doing Absolutely. so. Absolutely. Um, so what you know, aspirin looks really, really interesting um, because it, it interferes with a variety of pathways, but um, the majority of what it does is, is through interfering with uh, inflammatory signaling. And inflammation, you know, the kind of aberrant um, spiraling of, of immune signaling that causes damage uh, to, to human physiology generally affects a lot of different organ systems and predisposes to a lot of diseases. So, you know, it, it, it is involved in cancer genesis, but it's also involved in cardiovascular disease, in uh, neurological disease, in, in meta- metabolic disease and so on. So it's an attractive proposition to say, well, if we have this drug that you know, can bring down low levels simmering in inflammation, you can reduce the risk of multiple diseases. But aspirin is not a clean drug that only does one thing. Uh, it does a lot of different things. It also, for example, um, decreases the secretion of protective mucus in your stomach and your gastrointestinal system, which means it is less protected from your stomach acid. And so you've got an increased risk of uh, stomach ulcers and, and gastric bleeds. And, and, you know, there are other off-target effects of aspirin as well. So you've got to balance benefit and risk, essentially. Sure, absolutely. Um, any other examples of uh, chemo prevention drugs that might... Um, mm. that might... Yeah. So there are some interesting examples emerging from the um, therapeutic world where drugs that have been used to treat disease um, also have potential uh, protective effects that can arrest disease progression at an earlier stage, i.e. prevent the disease from manifesting. So one example is tamoxifen in um, breast cancer, um, which is used as a you know a treatment um, for existing breast cancer, but also um, because of the way it interferes with uh, hormonal signaling in, in breast cells and kind of emerging cancer cells, um, also uh, reduces the risk of uh, developing breast cancer. So that can be used to prevent recurrence in women that already have had breast cancer, but also um, potentially can be used in uh, women at elevated risk. So for you know, carriers of, of the BRCA genes, for example, um, is an interesting risk group where you would look to prevent because those women are at higher risk. Mm-hmm. So tamoxifen is one example. Um, another example that's under active research currently is metformin. Metformin is a drug that's used in uh, type 2 diabetes. Yeah. yeah, that's right. So it's sort of interfere with the sugar processing physiology to, to lower blood sugar. And that offers obviously benefits you know in treating diabetes but also um there's early data you know indicating that it uh, may reduce the risk of uh, a variety of cancers due to you know interfering with the, the metabolism um of the of, of sort of precancerous change so that's something that's also sort of offering a lot of um promise and there are many other approaches that are you know being experimented with now that that you know I'm, i feel quite positive about the future of this field the ideal scenario is I think statins are a wonderful success story of uh, chemo prevention or therapeutic prevention, where you have in cardiovascular disease, you know, if you have elevated cholesterol, you are at high risk of of developing um, cardiovascular disease. And so statins have a very uh, clear ability to drive down cholesterol uh, and possibly have other effects as well, um, which reduce your risk of cardiovascular disease. And statins have been 
shown to have significant health benefits in, in large-scale clinical trials and have been taken up you know, pretty universally, um, certainly in the UK. And it is now commonplace for individuals who are ostensibly healthy, but in you know perhaps a, a later years of life, to take statins. You know, they're not ill, but they take those drugs to stop them getting ill. And if we could find something of that nature that you know reduced one's risk of cancer, I mean, that, that would be transformative. Absolutely. So I'd like to come at this from a slightly different perspective. Men have a reputation of not being particularly good about seeking care. Uh, in terms of early detection, are there differences between how men and women seek medical attention for symptoms? for early care or paying attention to prevention uh what, what what's the role of physicians and the the charity you work with for make sure making sure that people do yes uh, is the short answer there are um differences. Well, that's easy then. <laughs> yeah yeah um so there are certainly differences um between the genders on average in how uh, people respond to signs and symptoms themselves and uh, whether and how they present uh, those symptoms to primary care. And of course, there's you know enormous variability within uh, the genders between individuals as well. It's not just a men and women problem. There are, there are also issues in, in um, you know, particular kind of uh, social or demographic groups who present to primary care less or present um, with symptoms far longer after the onset of those symptoms um, than the average. And there is a kind of Britishness problem, I think, as well. You know, I think uh, if, you know, if you look at comparative data between nations, we present symptoms later and after much longer periods to our GPs on average than folks in other countries. And I think part of that is um, an aspect of our, you know, our national health system and essentially folks not wanting to bother their GP with something that might be trivial and you know, wasting their time. Whereas in a, a commercial healthcare setting like the United States, you go, you know, as soon as you feel a twinge, you can go to the doctor and it's a business and you're paying them or your insurance company's paying them. So why would you bother about wasting their time? You just present. So you asked, what's the role of, of physicians and of Cancer Research UK in addressing that, that challenge? I think both have an enormously important role to play. I think for physicians, the, the, health, the healthcare system in the UK is geared to firefighting. It's geared to um, treating the sick, understandably and essentially, but, you know, people presenting with symptoms and then finding the cause and then trying to help them, trying to cure them or trying to um, alleviate the disease. Now, of course, all of that is, you know, fighting the fire after the fact. And if you were to design a system from scratch, I think you logically would place much more emphasis on stopping things from becoming a problem in the first place and that's prevention it's health maintenance so i would you know look to a, a future healthcare system that devoted much more resource to health maintenance to public health uh, and to individual health and to work with individuals to make healthy choices to understand the factors that impact on their health and the increased risk of disease and to um, give people the information and the education necessary to make the best choices for themselves. And I think physicians can have an enormously important uh, role to play in that. And they do, you know, I mean, I think uh, GPs, uh, primary care physicians, absolutely do, you know, work with their patients um, to try and enable them to, to make healthy lifestyle choices. But, but because, you know, one doesn't tend to go to, in this country, to one's GP unless one is already sick, then 
you're often fighting a rearguard action. Yeah. You asked what the role of Cancer Research UK is in, in helping folks to present um, disease earlier, and we do put a, a great emphasis on that. Um, we support a lot of research, behavioural science, to uh, try and optimise the way that we can communicate with people um, to get them to present symptoms early. But also we, we um, do a lot of, you know, communications um, and you know we, we, we have a, a sort of a policy and communications team who, who do a lot of public engagement um, to hopefully enable people to recognize the early signs and symptoms of cancer in themselves and then report them um, to their GP as early as possible and that is crucial you know we, um, we really need to, to, to do better at that. Right right I mean there are some things that are done very well I mean there's national screening programs for colorectal cancer, aortic aneurysm, and you hit a certain age, you get a letter um, or an alert on your phone saying, please make an appointment to get your uh, aortic aneurysm screening or your colorectal cancer screening. So there are some things, listen, we can always do better. So you actually, you recently published an article about the importance of early detection of cancer. What, what were some of the high points and maybe summarize what the challenges are that we need to overcome and what improvements need to be made to ensure early detection? So you're referring, I think, to the paper that we published recently in Science. This was a, a review of the field of early detection research, where we, the author team, tried to do a bit of a State of the Union address um, to say, you know, where is this research field at? What are the major challenges? And um, how can we move forwards? How can we accelerate the rate of progress? So the the challenges at a very high level um, that we talked about were firstly um, understanding the biology of early cancer early detection can be a challenge because in humans disease as we've discussed often presents quite late and so if we're diagnosing people when the cancer's already grown already spread the biology of that advanced cancer is very different to the biology of that cancer when it was uh, a baby um, because cancer evolves over time so, you know, the first uh, mutations that cause a cancer uh, might only be one or two particular mutations. But then as the cancer grows and the cells divide, they're unstable. So they continue to mutate. And then suddenly it's not just one clone that's expanded up, but there are multiple clones. Um, you know, the cancer has evolved. Different you know, species of cancer start breeding within one tumour. And suddenly that disease is then much more complex. So understanding the biology through looking at late stage cancer tells you about late stage cancer but not how it first started so that's the first challenge is really understanding the very early biology and that's where model systems can be enormously important um, animal models but also sort of advanced cell-based um, model systems organoids the second challenge the paper discussed is about understanding the risk of developing cancer so if we knew which individuals in a population were at elevated risk of cancer, we could get much better at early detection because we could screen those at higher risk when they're still healthy uh, and pick up the cancers at a very early stage whilst not as intensively screening individuals at lower risk. Um, because, of course, with screening, there is a balance between benefit and, and, and risk through that screening, you know, um, false positives, um, also inappropriate diagnostic procedures. So we could go about understanding risk uh, in a much more sophisticated way. I'm particularly excited by the advent of big data and artificial intelligence approaches. There's lots of data fields about your life 
that give us information about your risk of developing cancer. You know, we can look at your genome, we can look at the um, kind of social and economic data about your life, which tells us more about your risk. We can look at your behavioral data, your, your diet, your exercise, your sleep patterns. Um, we can look at your internet search history. You know, there are many different fields of data, each of which has signals of cancer risk. And if we I'm can sorry, use... internet, internet search history and oh, yeah. cancer risk? Yeah, Come on. Sure. Well, what, what's, the, what's the first thing that everyone does if they feel poorly? If they've got a, oh, right. Okay. Their I'm, I'm with you. I was going to think I'm checking up to see the latest news on my football team uh-huh. or, or what jazz well, shows are on. So, so you, you joke, but um, aside from symptom reporting, you know, um, there, are, there are patterns of, of behaviours which put you in uh, in an elevated risk group which are actually you know quite subtle and it's you know if you're you know, looking at i don't know particular restaurants that you're googling and and they're you know you're, you're looking at uh, fast food and processed uh, sort of restaurants you know that would put you in a higher risk category than somebody that was googling vegan restaurants okay all right fascinating I mean, really fascinating so mm-hmm. listeners as we're moving towards the end um you created a roadmap for early detection and diagnosis of cancer. Tell us a little bit about that roadmap. So the the roadmap um, for early detection and diagnosis was a an effort to have an end to end holistic view of how we get to a world where nobody gets a late cancer diagnosis. And this is something, at least to my knowledge, has never really been attempted before. This wasn't just about science, and it wasn't just about the health system, and it wasn't just about government policy. It's the whole thing. So what we did was perform uh, an extensive consultation across all of the parts of that ecosystem. We consulted scientists, we consulted drug companies and medical technology companies, we consulted NHS docs and NHS managers and decision makers, the regulators who make decisions about which medicines and technologies get used, and crucially, we consulted patients and the public. And we took all of those opinions, all of that input, and brought it together under the auspices of a, a core kind of steering group that was chaired by uh, Chris Whitty before the COVID pandemic made him rather busy. And we made a plan that says... If we want to get to that future perfect world where nobody gets a late cancer diagnosis, what does that world look like? How is the healthcare system operating? How is the entire policy and you know public system operating to enable no late cancer diagnoses? And then what are all the problems between here and there and how do we get past them? And so the roadmap made a series of recommendations for, for science, for investment and entrepreneurialism, for NHS evolution and for government policy change to try and get us to that perfect world. So final question I like to ask all my guests. If you had three wishes, um, maybe you come across a, a genie who grants you three wishes and you can advance global healthcare as it relates to cancer, well, or maybe not anything, global healthcare, how would you improve it? Hmm. So if we're, if we're talking with the broadest possible brush, I think probably the, the one thing that would improve human health the most would be, um, I'd, I would wish for universal access to abundant clean energy. 
And that might seem a bit left field, but I think that is what will underpin human progress in all uh, aspects. You know, fundamentally, mo most things come down to the, the cost of sort of energy requirements to power whatever you know technology um, you need to use. And abundant access to clean energy would enable people to live uh, healthier lives um, across the planet. And that could be through, you know, improved uh, um, irrigation or, you know, crop growth, access to, to food, and then also obviously creation and implementation of medicines. So that's my number one genie wish. My number two genie wish would be universal uptake and access to uh, healthy lifestyle choices. I think if all parts of global society had access to affordable, healthy foods and, you know, fresh fruit and vegetables and, and everything else and high fibre and whatnot and clean water, then that would transform health and, and the, um, the ability of everyone to choose those uh, healthy options. And then my third genie wish would be an advancement of biological knowledge to the point where everyone can take a universal prophylactic pill or other technology that intervenes in our biology to snuff out early aberrant changes and those that may be cellular uh, or biochemical that arrests the inception of disease um, across diseases well um I, I like all three. My fingers are crossed that they will happen. And if they do, you know, it needs people like you to, to press the button. You know, I was checking the news this morning and as one does and seeing the state of the world we're in at the moment. And it's not a happy place. And everything we do as um, as a planet affects everyone on the planet. And we've really got to up our game. I'm afraid that we, we, we've run out of time, but I want to thank you, Dr. David Crosby, for sharing your knowledge with us and everything you're doing to head off the big C. It's been a pleasure speaking to you. Thank you very much for having me. It's been fun. So, folks, if you enjoyed this episode of the EMJ podcast, please like us on social media, tell your friends, and subscribe for more episodes wherever you get your podcasts. But until next time, I'm Jonathan Sakia. Thank you for listening. Stay safe. Stay well. Stay curious. Bye for now.